I could not see how or where we struck until we were clear of the Lucinda. I asked the captain how it happened, and he said, The wheel would not come over, and added, She had not enough steam. And then he said, I won't risk it again. After this conversation, I waited to see what he really would do on his next trip, expecting that the steamer would be taken down the river some distance before she would clear the line of the Lucinda. The week, Brisbane, 21st of February, 1896. Hello, and welcome to the Shipwreck Archive. Thank you. Would you happen to have the story, The Fatal Course of the Fairy Pearl? Here we are. Enjoy! The Pearl was a busy ship. She and two other ferry steamers named the Alice and the Young Matt had been hired to transport people across the Bisbane River after the bridge board, on February 13th, had ordered that Victoria Bridge be closed due to a flood. The rafts of debris that the floodwaters had washed down had formed rafts that had compromised the structure and safety of the bridge as they hit the supporting beams, causing the bridge to start sinking. Though this had been attempted to be solved with dynamite, in the end, the bridge authority surrendered and ordered the hiring of ferries. Among the criticisms that people would have about how the entire situation had been managed, the fact that the bridge authority had not dealt with the rafts of debris until it was too late was loudly voiced. The Pearl was a 41-ton wooden screw steamer, built in 1883. Her general trade was up and down the river between Brisbane and Redland Bay, but with a capacity of 110 passengers, it was not the first time that she had been hired to help people cross the river in times of flood. On the same day as she had been hired for the job, the Pearl and the other ferries got to work, transporting people between Musgrave Wharf, South Brisbane, and the Queen's Wharf, on the city side of the river. Anchored at the Musgrave Wharf were the government steamers, the Normanby, and Lucinda, whose anchor chain the Pearl had run afoul of, according to the story of passenger E. Todovan. When Todovan had asked Captain James Chard how he would steer the ship the next time, he had said next time he would go below the Lucinda. Dubious, rather than returning home right away, Todovan and two other passengers remained on the wharf, to watch what the captain would actually do on his next passage. To their amazement, rather than heading further down the river, where the crossing would be safer, they watched as Captain Chard made no changes to his course at all. And to compound the matter, he did not come around as quickly as the other two ferries had done, making the same passage. The crossing that Todovan was watching, with mounting horror on the wharf, was the five o'clock passage, full of businessmen who were leaving the office for the day, and women who had been to town shopping or working in one of the garment factories in the city. No one was entirely certain how many people were on board, though they were sure that the ferry had not been over capacity. 
Most estimates place the number of passengers between 80 and 100, though Captain Chard would put the number between 50 and 60. In addition, there were also four members of the crew on board. On board the Pearl for her final voyage, James Wilson, his wife, and their companion, Mrs. Harper, were the final people to go on board at Queen's Wharf. James Wilson had been on ships steered previously by Captain Chard and had some knowledge of him as a person. On this occasion, he would later say that Captain Chard had seemed off, though he did not notice it until they were underway. They found seats on the bridge where they could see Captain Chard at the wheel, steering the ship, and they had a clear view of the trip across the rushing floodwaters. Tonovan and the other passengers who had remained on the wharf to watch the next crossing realized that Captain Chard, rather than going further up the river as they had expected, seemed instead to be trying to go between the Normanby and the Lucinda. On the Pearl, Captain Chard came within half a length of the Normanby's bow and then gave orders to stop the ship's engines. With the engine stopped, the ship was carried downstream, and James Wilson would say that they had passed close enough to the stern of the Normanby that he could have jumped on board of the ship. Once they were past the Normanby, Captain Chard gave the order for full speed ahead. At this point, James Wilson could no longer remain silent, and from where he was standing near the funnel, he asked Captain Chard if he intended to drown all hands, since the boat clearly did not have enough headway now to get ahead of Lucinda. Indeed, he would later say that he did not believe there was enough room for the ferry to go between the two government ships without a good head of steam. It was true that the three ferries had all been passing between the Lucinda and the Normanby, but never with such low steam to fight the current. Not only that but one of the members of the crew of the Normanby would later state that the captain of the Normanby had ordered the ship to be given a longer chain that afternoon. The two government steamers were now about a hundred yards closer together than they had been before. Captain Chard looked over at James Wilson when he protested the orders that he was giving, but did not say anything, and continued on his disastrous course. The Pearl got swept down by the strong flood current of the river, just as James Wilson had predicted. She struck the anchor chains of Lucinda, and Captain Chard gave the order to stop. Then came the order to reverse the engines, but it was far too late. As the Pearl struck the chains of Lucinda, she carried away the Lucinda's bowsprit with her funnel, and then came onto the chain's broadside. Somewhere in the chaos, the Pearl also struck one of the boats hanging from Davits on the Normanby. The Pearl, buffeted by the two ships, and put off balance by the chains of the Lucinda, the entire ferry capsized. Not only that, but the anchor chain of the Lucinda ripped into the side of the Pearl, and witnesses would later say that they had seen people fall from the upper deck onto the lower deck through the hole that had been made. Down in the engine room, 
Marine Engineer Walter Tate had his ear to the speaking tube and his hand on the lever waiting for orders. The owners of the Pearl used different combinations of crew, and, though he had served on the Pearl before, he had never served with Captain Chard before. As they crossed the river on this last voyage, he had not received a single order, but then had come the order to slow down the engines, stop the engines, and then reverse. From these orders, Engineer Tate could guess the nature of the trouble facing the Pearl. He also knew it was too late. In still water, it would take 30 revolutions of the steamer's screw propeller for the steamer to come to a standstill. Whatever Captain Chard was hoping to avoid, based on the orders that had been given, it was far too late. Still, Tate only left his post when water began to rapidly fill the engine room. The engine was still reversing the ship, but as he left, Tate pulled the lever to stop the engine. With the Pearl sinking, a turning propeller could do more harm than good. The water was already starting to reach the awning of the ferry as Tate reached the side of the ship. He barely had time to dive out of the ship and into the river. He knew that at least a couple of people had been trapped under the awning. Many of the passengers saw the accident coming, and a few of them even jumped into the water before the ship capsized, seeing the inevitable end of the ship, which sank in the space of only a couple of minutes, if that. On the deck of the ship, James Wilson had been standing near where his wife and their companion, Mrs. Harper, had been sitting since the seating on the ferry was limited. When he knew that the ship was going over, Wilson put his arm around his wife's waist, and as they went into the water, she told him that she would stick by him, since she knew he did not know how to swim. The couple went under the water together, but Wilson felt something hard underfoot and used it to kick off so he could return to the surface. When he surfaced, though, his wife was no longer in his arms. He would never see her again though he later had the solemn task of identifying Mrs. Harper at an undertaker's shop. Wilson managed to keep himself above water until a boat was able to pull him out of the river and bring him to safety. He was later found by the newspaper reporters entirely devastated by the loss of his wife, but being well cared for by his neighbors. He was not able to remain in mourning long either. Mrs. Harper, who had been staying with the family, left behind four children in his home, between the ages of one and eight. And the newspapers reported that Wilson had declared that he was taking charge of them, now that they had no parent. Boats quickly converged on the area to save as many people as possible as did the other ferries and the crew of the Lucinda. Ships in the surrounding area also began to throw as many flotation devices as they could find into the water for people to grab a hold of. Martha Morin had been traveling with her father and brother after they had just held a funeral for her mother that morning. The trio found seats on the upper deck of the ferry, and when the ship capsized, they were thrown into the water. Martha did not see her father and brother after that, 
though her brother had managed to find safety by clinging to the chains of the Lucinda until he could be rescued. Martha Morin was struck by a piece of debris and remembered fighting to surface twice before she lost consciousness. One of the people who went out in a boat to help the people in the water would later testify that he had seen her father, but that he had been one of the first people to go under. He had thrown Martha Morin a life preserver, though, and she had been kept afloat by that until she could be pulled onto the deck of the Lucinda, where she was reunited with her brother. The two siblings had become orphans in a very short period of time. Considering the time of the accident, many initially feared that there would be many schoolchildren returning home. But the passengers who were on board reassured the public that there were very few even then. It was not all bad news. Four schoolgirls from the convent school who all lived as neighbors were traveling home from school together. One of the girls grabbed a seat as the collision occurred, and as the girls rushed forward to the water, she held on to it, using it as a flotation device until a rope was flung to her from the Lucinda. Her cousin caught onto the Lucinda's anchor chains and held onto them until she was pulled up. The two remaining girls, two sisters, clung to one another when the ship collided and were thrown into the water still in one another's arms. The older sister managed to grab onto a piece of wood that was floating in the water and held her sister up as they were carried by the current downstream. Both of them were pulled from the water by a boat, and none of the four were injured in any way during the entire experience. Captain Chard initially did go down with his ship, but as he reached the bottom, he could feel the bridge breaking under his feet, and then the vessel listed so heavily that Captain Chard was thrown against the anchor chains of Lucinda, which knocked the air out of him, and he went under again. When he came up again, he was near the stern of Lucinda, and he could see two women struggling in the water. He could also see a lifebuoy in the water near him. Grabbing a hold of the lifebuoy, he brought it to the two women, and the three held on to it together. With the weight of all three of them, the boy was of only some assistance, and Captain Chard had to kick his legs the entire time to keep them afloat, while also holding one of the women, who was barely conscious, above the surface. The trio was eventually picked up by a boat and landed at the dock. Captain Chard found his clothing had been torn in his trip down the river, and so he went to get changed before returning to the wharf only to find that everything was as resolved as it could be for the night. To all that would listen on the wharf, he protested that the fault had lain with the steering mechanism of the ship. With the chaos of people who had suddenly found themselves in the river, as well as no passenger manifest, it was a tense night across Brisbane and the surrounding area as people waited for word as to whether or not their loved ones or neighbors had been on the ferry. In total, it was estimated that at least 40 people had been lost at the time, though later estimates placed the number closer to 57. And no one was ever sure who all had been on the ferry that evening. By the next morning, 
It was a matter of recovery more than rescue. And the city got ready for the inquiry, hoping that it would bring them answers. The inquiry did not place Captain Chard in a good light. James Wilson made allegations in his testimony, and from his past knowledge of the captain, that he believed that the captain had been drunk that evening. Though, evidence of only one beer having been consumed by the captain that day was found, and Captain Chard strongly denied the allegation. He also denied having given any order to the engine room other than to reverse right before the collision. He said that he had never given the order for slowing down, stopping, going ahead again, or reversing. Since this went against the testimony of almost every other witness, this was met with some skepticism. He had an even harder time explaining why he had chosen the course he had after the near miss the trip before. He admitted that there was no reason that he had to go between the two larger ships, except that if he did not, it would make the voyage longer, and he was afraid that passengers would complain about him taking the long way when the other two ferries were going between the ships. The fault of the accident did not lay with the course he had chosen, but rather with the two government ships who had chosen to anchor right in the path of the ferries. As a final defense, Captain Chard repeated the statement that he had made on the wharf. His ship was not responding properly to the wheel. With this, at least the witnesses agreed with him though they did not agree with his belief of a mechanical failure. The fault instead lay with Captain Chard having ordered the ship to slow down too much to have any sort of control against the floodwaters. On the 15th of April, after hearing testimony from everyone they could call and do consideration, Captain Chard was found to have been wanting in skill in navigating his vessel. His certificate as a master both for home trade and to take charge of steamers, were cancelled. Captain Chard was no longer a captain. By this time, the wreck of the Pearl had already been raised. Divers had searched the wreck on the 20th of February and found her with her port side heavily broken up, laying with a list to port to the extent that the riverbed was level with her deck. Once the ship was searched, and what could be learned from it was learned. The underwriters stepped in to bring it to the surface on the 27th of February. With this, the pearl was gone, but its effects on the community remained. Even a week later, people were still trying to piece together who had been lost. A hotel issued a statement saying that a guest had not returned after that night. They supposed the worst. A person was pulled from the water far downstream. Were they from the Pearl, or some other unfortunate accident? It is possible that the Pearl is the deadliest shipwreck to have happened on a river in Australia. And its effects lingered for some time to come. For more information, please see the Brisbane Courier from February 14, 1896, or see other sources in the description below. Thank you for listening. 
Thank you for visiting the Shipwreck Archives. See you soon.